Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, we're delighted to have Yumiko Kadota in conversation about the toxic culture of bullying and overwork that junior doctors can experience in the workplace as part of their training. Kadota's powerful memoir, Emotional Female, offers an account of what it was like to train in the Australian public hospital system and what made her walk away. Kadota will be in conversation with Reading's own Melissa Barillaro. Before we start, a quick reminder. As this is a recording of an event held live via the internet, there has been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. And now, here's the host of the event, Reading's Programming Manager, Chris Gordon. Welcome, welcome. My name is Chris Gordon. I am the Programming Manager for Readings, which is a wonderful, delightful job because it does mean that I get to work with pretty amazing people like Melissa. But more on that later. Before we get going, I want us all just to reflect on how busy our days have been, how bonkers it may have been. It's possible that you've gone to work. It's possible that you've been on a tram. It's possible you've gone for a walk. Whatever you've done and wherever you've been, I want us all just to take a little moment to remember that today and every day we are living on land that is not ours. It is not ceded land. It is stolen land. It belongs to the First Nations people. And I know that when I spend some time really thinking about how much this beautiful country has given me, I feel immense gratitude to the First Nations people. And I guess that what I want to do today and with you, joined in with you, is for us all just to take a a wee moment out of our days to reflect on the luxury that we have on living in such a beautiful country and to pay our respects to their elders past present and emerging. At the moment, I'm speaking from the Kulin Nation and on behalf of all of you here, I want to pay my gratitude to these people. And now let me tell you a little bit about my day. Working at readings is one of those privileged positions that allows you to come in contact with extraordinary authors and thought leaders, people that are creative, but also it's not just the authors and the journalists and the songwriters that we have contact with. It's the staff as well. And, of course, I'm speaking at the moment about Melissa. Melissa works in a variety of different roles in readings. She's also studying science part-time, and she's one of these people that makes working at readings a complete joy. She's one of these women that wants to talk about books, that wants to talk about ideas, and is excited by new ventures that come along. It is one of the great gifts of readings is that my colleagues are amongst the very best people in the entire world. Melissa, what a joy it is to have you as part of this Zoom platform. Welcome, welcome. Thank you so much, Chris. I'm so excited. I'm so glad. Thank you so much. You're too kind. Take it away, Mel. Introduce our star today. Introduce this author that you have literally been talking about now <laughs> for weeks. <laughs> yeah, it feels like forever. Um, so I'd love to introduce you all to Yumiko Kadota. I first picked up her book about two months ago and was simultaneously in love with it while also very scared by it. 
Yumiko, I think you're incredible. Thank you so much for joining us tonight and welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Melissa. Thanks for doing this with me. And I want to thank Chris for the introduction as well and the beautiful acknowledgement of country. Um, I'm joining from Kamaraygal land from the Eora Nation. So thanks so much for having me tonight. Thank you. So I want to start off with the potentially obvious question that you might be asked a lot. But why write this book now? You had the blog that gained a lot of attention. Um, It was a very vulnerable time in your life. What was the moment where you were like, nope, I need to write this. It needs to reach a larger audience. Well, to be honest, it took me the whole two years since the blog to write it. (laughs) This is my first book, so it did take a long time to write it. And um, I've got Nikki Krista here joining the event, who's my publisher, who gave me a very, very generous timeline. She knew that it was my first time writing a book. So she gave me a lot of support and wanted me to write the best possible book that I possibly could and had a lot of editorial support along the way. Um, So I pretty much started writing the book straight after the blog post came out. So that was at the start of 2019 and have spent the last two years writing and rewriting the book. Um, I hope that no one ever sees the first draft because it is just so cringy it's so terrible I don't think I could even bear to look at it now Um, but it, it went through a lot of changes over the last two years and I guess I've evolved as a person in the last two years too I mean I was still very unwell when I started writing the book and still going through various medications and things I would still have terrible insomnia so part of writing the book and editing it involved me constantly changing things based on how I was feeling at the time. And so so I think I definitely needed the last two years to to finish it. Yeah, and I'm sure that going through all that at the same time as constantly reliving something you were trying to work through would have been very difficult as well. Um, Oh, gosh, yeah. (laughs) I definitely needed to take breaks on the books, that's for sure. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, so it's good that you had that timeline that was like, I need a break from this for a little bit. No, I am grateful for that. I didn't feel rushed or pressured at any point to to get it out quickly, so I did have time to to let it breathe a bit. Yeah, that's really good. And how are you now? How are we going? (laughs) I'm good. I'm a lot better now. Um, I'm so glad. Yeah, I've been... Thankfully, I've been able to return to some clinical work. Um, I went back last year and I'm still in plastics. I follow two plastic surgeons to all of their operating lists in the private hospital. So I'm still able to use my skills, which is great, but a bit more of a balanced lifestyle now. I, I do that part time and I have my other days where I get to do creative things and in the last year, I decided that I wanted to teach body pumps. So I teach body pump classes. I saw weekend. that. That's so- <laughs> yeah, that's so exciting. I love it. And you're a yoga teacher as well. Yeah, you have your yoga teaching license. That's so cool. <laughs> Woman of many talents. I definitely have my eat, pray, love journey. It's just so <laughs> basic, isn't it, to go to Bali and go and get a yoga teacher certificate. Definitely not. <laughs> I mean, it worked and it sounded incredible. So, and it obviously helped a lot, which is really great. And I feel like it can be very hard when you're in those headspaces to be like, this is exactly what I need right now. And you were honestly brave enough to recognize that there was something going on and want to fix that. So I think that's very admirable. 
I think a lot of us do struggle with that sometimes, you know, to to put yourself first. I think we often feel guilt if we want to take a break or do something just for you. And I, I remember when I quit my job, I'd been working for nearly eight years at that point thinking, what am I going to do now? And I'd spent eight years looking after other people and I really struggled to let other people look after me. Even going to see my doctor and a psychiatrist was really really difficult because it felt strange that it was somebody else who had the power, you know, somebody else who was making decisions about my care. So that was definitely um, a shift in, in thinking for me. Yeah, you have to step out of doctor's zone and kind of fall into this patient yeah. position. You're like, I've never been here before. I don't know what this is supposed to be. Yeah, um, and I can tell you doctors make the worst patients. Oh, yeah, I believe that 100%. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so on that and having to get a diagnosis and be the patient, how did you deal with the potential shame and stigma that mm. comes from that? Um, even from a cultural perspective, yeah, um, as a woman as well, because I know it would be very difficult. I definitely had to fight my own prejudices. I'd spent the last eight years in a workplace where mental illness was heavily stigmatized and it's ironic because we're health professionals and all of us have studied psychiatry as part of our medical degrees and we've all looked after patients with mental illnesses and we learn to not judge anyone with mental illness and, and treat everyone with a lot of compassion and yet when it's a colleague somehow it's different it's it's interesting to read studies and, and I quote the um the beyond blue study at the end of the book as well that doctors think of colleagues with mental illness as somehow less competent they think that it would affect um you know job promotions and there's a lot of barriers to to seeking mental health care among doctors i guess there's this fear of getting reported to the medical board because if your colleague is impaired by other things like alcohol, for example, that's a mandatory report. And so for the longest time, doctors have tried to make it easier for um, doctors to reach out for mental health care um, without the fear of being reported. And that's, I think that continues to still be a massive barrier. And I just was very scared of the diagnosis. I refused to accept it straight away I was like oh no no I'm I'm fine I'm just tired but I knew that as soon as my psychiatrist talked through all of my symptoms I was like yeah she's right <laughs> and I think that once I did accept it I started to get better because I started to allow myself to to heal and to accept medications and it's funny because I'm a doctor, but I never wanted to take medications. But now, you know, I fully accept that if that's what I need to function, then that's what I need. And there's no shame in it. And what I really wanted to do with the book is to destigmatize mental illness because it is very common. And it, you know, a lot of people are very high functioning with mental illness. You can still be successful in whatever job that you have with a mental illness. And the more people can reach out for help, the better, because I'm functioning so much better now having gone through all the treatment, all the therapy, all the other things, you know, exercise and sleep and non-medical things that have helped, yoga, all of those things help. And so I think that sharing my experience was really important because I knew there were other people out there who would be too scared to go to the doctor about something like this. 
Well, yeah, and there is that kind of feeling that if you are an emotional female, you can't go into these high positions or these very hardworking positions because you'll burn out, you'll get depressed or people won't take you seriously. Um, So I think it's very important that you've written about this, especially since you describe in the book how when you were younger, you're like, I've always been happy. I'm just a happy person. And then having to reconcile that Yumiko that you knew and that you had always assumed was just part of you with Mm. this kind of identity you had to accept that was depressed and burnt out. What was that like? How did you merge Mm. those two Yumikos in your mind? Well, I mean, I'm still a happy person. And even through the depression, I was still laughing and cracking jokes. And that's the thing. What I want to encourage people to do is reach reach out to your friends who you think are strong, your strong friends, your happy friends, because you never know what's going on. And people are very good at putting on a facade. And, and I remember when I wrote my blog post, a few people I'd worked with contacted me and said they, they honestly had no idea that I was struggling because I was always smiling and cracking jokes. And I'm still like that now. And I think that, uh, you know, depression has lots of different symptoms. It doesn't always mean that you're you're sad. And I don't think I ever felt sad. I definitely felt numb and I definitely felt like I couldn't enjoy the things I used to enjoy. But there are just so many different aspects of depression. For me, the main thing was um, cognitive. I found that my speech was a bit slower. I was finding it difficult to concentrate by the end. And I was just not sleeping. That was the worst thing. I had insomnia for about 18 months. So that was really the most difficult thing for me. I think most people can relate to having a really bad night's sleep. It just affects you the next day and it was just constant. But it it was scary seeing myself not functioning, having no energy, because I'd always been an energetic person. But I think I've always been an optimistic person, even though I knew I was going through a rough time. I knew that I would eventually get out of it because I had trust in the people looking after me. And and like I said before, that was difficult to let somebody else look after me and trust another health professional to do that. But I knew that I had to. um, And I knew that I had to have hope because without hope, it's impossible to try and get out of it. So I was always hopeful. Um, and it, and it was frustrating cause I'm a very impatient person, um, but I knew, I knew that eventually things would get better. I'm really glad. Um, it's so good to know that even throughout all that really shit time for lack of a better word. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, quite literally I did shit myself. Oh so. yeah. We <laughs> definitely have to talk about that. Um, I loved that part of the book. I was like, this is just so open I love it (laughs) yeah you know something funny I I I actually had to edit that out of my blog post initially so I I had included that in my blog post so anyone who saw it the day it came out would have seen it but then um the Australian Medical Association in New South Wales they got in touch because they you know they wanted to support me they they thought it was you know a brave thing that I'd done then they'd obviously do a lot of work advocating for junior doctor well-being so they did get me in touch with um 
someone from the media department there and they said, look, maybe cut that bit out because you don't want Daily Mail writing an article about you being the poo girl. So, <laughs> And they knew that they'll be... They, just they, they, would, they would focus on that. So, oh, yeah. They'd be um, like Doctor Who shat herself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they're, they're like... I'd love to do that. Yeah. So they're like, look, maybe cut that bit out. So I actually ended up going back uh, a day or two after I originally posted it and, and removed that bit. But I knew that I, I definitely had to put it in the book because that was actually the thing that made me stop working. <laughs> That's yeah. the thing that made me go, you know what? Things are so bad that my physical body is breaking down. That's um, That was a new low for me because I'd been able to deal with stress and not sleeping enough but I'd never been that run down that I had no control over my basic bodily functions. And it's interesting because I've recently heard of another person in a different industry who got severely burnt out and the same thing happened to her as well. She lost continents. And I was like, no way. I didn't think I'd find a bowel bunny, but here we are. Here we are. Find a friend in the weirdest of places, even shit. Yeah, you, you bond over the strangest things. But I think we both knew that that was the, the body telling us to stop because if you are a bit of a workaholic and a bit stubborn like me, you'll just keep going. And I felt like I had no choice. I'm like, well, what else am I going to do? I'm not really qualified to do anything else. This is all I've ever done and all I've ever worked towards. So I kept going and going, but that incident was definitely the one that made me, that definitely made me stop. (laughs) I think when something undignified like that happens, I think it forces you to think about what got you there because it's you know I was 30 at the time and when you're young fit and healthy that is not normal (laughs) and I knew I don't think you need to be a doctor to know that (laughs) yeah it's like "Hmm, this probably isn't great I'm on my way to work and I've literally just pooed myself (laughs) yeah yeah Um, yeah I thought it was very honest and I thought it was great to include that because as you said before there are many different symptoms of burnout and depression that people don't really talk about. You know, there is this stigma that it's just being sad, but it's a serious thing and there are feelings associated with being numb and insomnia and incontinence. And I think that these are things that people shy away from and they don't want to talk about it because, mm. you know, maybe even our parents' generations, like, oh, we don't talk about these things. Yeah. Um, and I definitely come from a cultural background where it's not common to talk about mental illness. I'm at sure. all. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm Japanese and in Japan, there is a lot of mental illness in Japan. And we have all sorts of different disorders that don't really even exist in, in other countries like the hikikomori, which people might have heard of before, where it's it's like a an extreme social recluse. Um, so there are lots of social anxiety um, disorders that are unique to Japan. Um, There's so much going on and yet people don't talk about it in Japan. You know, you, you people, I guess, are too polite to, to ask questions about it. But I've always been very open. I guess I'm a bit of an oversharer, which is probably good for a memoir because <laughs> you kind of want to know everything, right? I mean, I know that when I read other people's memoirs and it's obvious that they've chosen to withhold certain things, I, I respect that because there is a certain amount of self-preservation that you need to respect. But 
for me, I really connect to memoirs where the author just puts it all out there. And I definitely knew that that's what I wanted to do as well, because I think true connection comes from being vulnerable and open about the more uncomfortable things. So Yeah, you have to get uncomfortable to make change. Yeah, definitely. Like, I think when you talk about things like poop, to talk, (laughs) to make change and, um, you know, create awareness and destigmatize because yeah and and it's it's remarkably common um gut issues now I think there's been a lot of interest in gut health over the last few years and and certainly after that happened to me I did a lot of reading around it and there's still so much we don't know the gut is so important for mental health and overall health as well I mean I only knew this recently that 90% of serotonin is produced in the gut. And so, yeah, no, look it up. I'm not, I'm not making it up. I believe you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, if you look up the physiology of serotonin, the gut is very important, 90%. It makes and a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. And a lot of people talk about the gut brain axis as well. I mean, the fact that we have phrases like gut feeling, trust your gut, you know, mm. that that tells me that there has to be some sort of neural connection between the brain and the gut. So I definitely did a lot of reading on this and, um, you know, the autonomic nervous system definitely is implicated in a lot of um, conditions, including chronic fatigue, which I spoke about earlier in the book. Um, For me, that was really important to include early on, a, a bit like a precursor to what I wanted to talk about later, a lot of people experience fatigue. I'm sure most of us went to school and 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 remember a student who had time off because they had glandular fever and had chronic fatigue syndrome afterwards. It's a very kind of vague condition and no one really understands it. And there's so much stigma when something is invisible, you know, whether it's an illness or a disability. If you can't see it, it's very difficult to empathize with people with invisible illnesses. I thought to myself, it's so much easier if you were walking around with crutches or had a big cast on. People can see it and understand it, but if they can't see it, it's harder for people to comprehend what's going on. So to talk about the stigma of chronic fatigue was really important to introduce that earlier on and then kind of bring it together at the end, talking about mental illness, because I think that this is a space that we need to pay more attention to. There are lots of people out there with silent illnesses. And, you know, I I recently read Growing Up Disabled in Australia, which was really great. And, you know, one in five Australians have disabilities. And a lot of those disabilities are, um, you know, intellectual or invisible. So I think it's important to talk about these things that are stigmatized. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, There is this idea that if if I can't see it, it's not there. And that's what we are taught to believe. And, you know, even if it comes to like science, we're like, oh, but we know things that we can see. But it's just, it's not the case, especially with humans, because they're so unpredictable. And I think we definitely have to break down those barriers around invisible illnesses. So I'm really glad you spoke about that. We have a question from a lovely viewer, Deborah. Deborah asks, what is one simple thing the medical profession could do to alleviate the stress on medical students and trainee doctors? I think the easiest thing to do actually is to increase visibility. So when 
there are people around you who look like you, it gets a lot easier. So, for example, um, well, at the moment there are a lot of women in medical schools. So actually more than half of medical students are women now, which is great. (laughs) Lots more women coming through. But in areas like surgery, only 11% of surgeons are women. Yeah, there are like 13 female cardiothoracic surgeons yeah. in Australia. That's it's ridiculous. tiny. Yeah, you follow Nikki Stamp, don't you? Oh, That's I definitely do. I <laughs> love <funny>. her. <laughs> yeah. Um, she's, she's a great advocate for women in surgery. So I love that, like, everyone who follows her knows those stats. And in, in areas like orthopedics, there's even less. Only, only 3 or 4% of orthopedic surgeons are women. And that kind of makes sense because orthopedics are seen as a very masculine specialty because you're there, you know, hammering nails into bones and things. It's, you know, it's like glorified carpentry, right? So um, that's what we used to say when we did hand fractures. We're just glorified carpenters. But, um, but yeah, in, in proving the visibility of women in those areas is really going to help because I think that there is this blokey lad culture and, and men can get away with misogynistic jokes and snide remarks if there's no one around no women around to say that it's not appropriate if it's just the men making jokes like that they can get away with it so I think having more women around having more visibility more diversity in the workforce is only a good thing so I think that's an easy thing to do to improve um, to improve the the visibility of marginalized group whether that's through targets or quotas is is a huge debate. I'm starting to feel like we need to have quotas because it hasn't improved quickly enough, um, especially in the higher positions. But that's a start. And the other easy thing to do is to make sure that the working hours are safe. It's it's not that hard to mandate things. And, you know, both the AMA and the College of Surgeons have had guidelines for safe working hours for a very long time. But the problem with guidelines is they're only recommendations. You don't have to follow them. You know, you can get away with breaking those guidelines. So I think it's important to enforce some limits when it comes to working hours, making sure that there's a minimum number of staff um, on any given unit. A few years ago, there was a, a innocent throat surgery trainee who um, died by suicide. And because of that, the college changed it so that there's a minimum of three people who cover an on-call roster. So the on-call is the 24-hour roster that all hospitals have to make sure that at any given time, if a patient comes in with a problem, there's someone you can call from whichever specialty you need. And it's it's just ridiculous to me that a tragedy like that has to happen before things change. I think we need to enforce limits like that, having that minimum number of doctors for the roster, making sure that doctors aren't working consecutive 24-hour shifts. All those things are really easy to, to do. Um, cultural change is a lot harder to, to put in place because it's much harder to measure, but things like you know, quotas or, you know, improving visibility, things like safe working hours, they're a bit more concrete and easier to do. So my feeling is that if we can do that um, first, it's the easiest thing to do. Um, Susie also asks, what about calling out the behaviour of senior professionals? Mm, That is so hard to do. I think in any industry, really. I mean, 
everyone always says nothing good ever comes for the whistleblower. It is very hard to call it out. I know that some people say we should call in rather than call out. There's a more conservative way of approaching it. I, I do think that there are ways that we can address, you know, inappropriate comments in things in the workplace. And this is actually something I learned from Twitter. So, <laughs> you know, they, they say Twitter's the mean girls of social media, but I do learn something <laughs> now and then from Twitter. But I, I read that a good way of coping with comments made against you is to first question what that person has said. So asking them to repeat it, saying, oh, excuse me, is that, can you explain what you meant or do you mind repeating that? Because that's that forces the person to stop and repeat what they have said. And I think that when you have to repeat what you have to say, you have to process what you just said. And so that can um, allow people to stop and think about exactly what they've said. And that's a non-confrontational way of doing things. So I kind of like that approach. I wish I had adopted that before because often when people used to say sexist or racist things to me, I would just laugh it off or ignore it. But if I had had, I guess, the assertiveness to say, hang on, can you explain that to me or can you repeat that? I think it might have made a little bit of a difference at least. So I think you can do little things like that to start with without doing a big call out, which can be a bit of an intimidating thing to do. And, you know, I I do talk in the book about how difficult it is for people to report things, especially when it comes to things like sexual assault. I spoke about a neurosurgeon in Melbourne called Caroline Tan, who was sexually assaulted. And she took the case to tribunal and she won. And even though she won, she was still ostracized by the neurosurgery community and she still has not been able to work in a public hospital. It's very, very, it's hard enough as it is to get a public hospital appointment, but after that she just had no chance of getting in. And so now her work is limited to the private system. And similarly, there is a professor in the book who assaulted a a registrar and he ended up going to jail. And even though he went to jail, it's always the the victim who seems to be blamed. There's a lot of victim blaming and shaming. And I, I don't personally know the victim, but I have mutual friends who, who, inform, who inform me that she was never able to get a job in New South Wales after that because the professor had such an excellent reputation as both a clinician and educator and, and people just don't believe the victim. And so she had to go interstate. Um, And so when I see these things happening to women and even people like Brittany Higgins, you know, she had to resign from her job. It's it's difficult to see because perpetrators don't always have to leave the workplace. It's often the victims who have to leave. So it is difficult to report things and call out behaviours. So I think it is important to speak up, but I can respect why people still have that fear because of what we're seeing even now it is a very idealistic view that we'll be able to speak up report and the person will get fired and everything will just go Mm. on with our lives but it's not realistic and it's not the case because it's a lot harder than that and it is it's embarrassing and unfortunately no one wants to be the whistleblower at work 
But I think, yes, normalizing, calling in, not calling out. And it sucks that you have to be the person that's like, hey, check yourself. Yeah. <laughs> like, is it a horrible yeah. thing about me? But at the same time, like, it is very uncomfortable. There's lots of situations where women don't feel even safe enough to be able to, I guess, call out that kind of behavior. Mm. Um, a little bit different question. Zara, one of our viewers, asks, what are your measures of success? Oh, that is a great question. Oh, gosh. My my idea of success has changed over the years. I mean, obviously, you know, if you read the book, you can probably tell that I thought being the plastic surgeon was everything, but I've since learned that that's not the case. Success, I think you need to be happy with what you do. It, it helps if you love what you do and you're good at it. That's always a winning combo. But if what you're doing also aligns with your values, then that is success to me because you're personally and internally benefiting from from what you're doing so if you can find something that aligns with your values that's success and if you can help others with what you're doing as well I think that that's true success great answer I agree completely so I wanted to actually ask about this idea of knife before life (laughs) well a lot of us have done that, you know, placed our work or our ambitions Mm. above our health. Do you feel that you adopted this mentality because that's just who you were as a person, very hardworking, very goal-driven, or do you feel that as a woman and even as a woman of colour that was, you felt that was the only way you could succeed um, by putting your health as a lower priority to your career? I mean, you're pretty much told when you start surgery that that's what you're going to have to do. You have to make sacrifices. And I was willing to make those sacrifices. I was okay with not having the best social life. I mean, I tried my best. I still tried to, you know, go out on weekends and things. But if I couldn't make it, if I was working, that was completely fine. I was completely dedicated to my job. I think that maybe part of it was me trying to fit in because that phrase came from a bunch of male neurosurgeons who used to say knife before wife because the scalpel was more important than their family life. So I used to adopt that and say, well, knife before life because, you know, I didn't have a wife. So I kept saying knife before life and shared the motto with them to try and fit into this culture of being fully obsessed with surgery and working hard. But I think that it's so problematic because it glamorizes overworking, it glamorizes burnout, and it's so unhealthy. And I think that it's really a symptom of the toxic masculinity in surgery. There is this kind of bro culture where (laughs) the person who works the hardest, the person who's done the most number of hours, consecutive number of days doing on-call, they somehow see it as a trophy that they can carry around and it's just so unhealthy to to be competing for <laughs> who works the most and I, I definitely don't want to be in that competition anymore um you know after everything that I've gone through with my health and I still have a few little health problems here and there I just would never put myself through that again and I was naive I, I still had a lot of energy I started med school very young I was only 17 
and I became a doctor at 23. And so I still had a lot of energy bouncing off the walls. I was like, yeah, I'm going to do, I'm going to run a marathon. I'm going to try a triathlon. I had all these, I've always been one of those enthusiastic people. I wanted to try everything. And so it's not that I thought I was invisible, but I think that at the time I felt like I could just go for it. And I wasn't afraid of any sort of challenges. So I definitely adopted that motto wholeheartedly at the time. It's interesting, like even the knife before wife thing. Um, I remember in your book, you mentioned how I think it was someone who was a mentor to you. It was like, do you have a boyfriend? Because if you have a boyfriend, you may as well not do any of this. And it's like, (laughs) no one's saying that to the male neurosurgeons all bragging about their wives being at home alone. (laughs) It's funny. I I had a, a radio interview recently and it was a very blokey bloke I was talking to. And off air after we finished, he said, well, have you found a bloke since you quit? <laughs> and I just thought, wow, I was not expecting to be asked that. I love how the marker of success and happiness for a woman is finding a partner. And I just thought, gosh, did he even read my book? <laughs> yeah, honestly, did you really read the book? Yeah, I did find a partner after I quit, but I didn't want to finish the book like that. Initially, I did because I thought, well, everyone loves the, you know, love story, happy ending kind of thing. But then I thought, what am I on about? Like, that is the worst possible way of finishing a book because I don't want to give this impression that that's what I was aiming for at the end. I don't want to give young girls the impression that that's what you need to to be happy because it's not, it really isn't. Even if it is part of the happiness, it's like you don't want to. It's always nice when you find a partner and have a a happy relationship, but I just thought it's funny how I I got asked that because I just think it's clearly what a lot of people still think. It's an innocent question, but I think, wow, like, is is that the the thing that you're most interested to know? Yeah, it's like you yeah. want to hear about all these amazing things I've done. No, okay. <laughs> um, we have to finish up soon, so I just thought I would ask, um, what advice would you give to young aspiring doctors, particularly those of us that are emotional females? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's such a wonderful thing to be emotional, especially if you're going into the healthcare profession. Any kind of job where it involves looking after other people, it's so important to have that. It's part of your intelligence. Being emotionally intelligent makes you a better person and a better doctor because it it makes you human. It helps you connect with people. It helps you build rapport, makes you more caring, and it makes a massive difference to the person you're looking after. So always do that for your patients and never be afraid to express your emotions. With writing the book, I did not want to discourage anyone from ever going into medicine because it is a fantastic career. Um, Mm -hmm. I've had lots of highs as well as the lows. It's intellectually very challenging and it's very rewarding. There's so much opportunity to do good things for the community and for other people. So I encourage anyone who wants to do medicine. I guess what I wanted to do was to just highlight some of the potential challenges that you may face, especially if you're a woman and especially if you're a woman of colour. 
because I would be I would be dishonest if I said, oh, no, you're going to be fine. Everything mm-hmm. is fine. There's nothing yeah. wrong with the system because there are so many structural issues. You know, there are power structures that enable other people to succeed. And so sometimes you do come across these unfair challenges, but we can navigate them. And I do think that even though culture takes a very long time to change, things are going to get better and they'll only continue to get better if we're ready and open to talk about them. So if any young women are watching this, I I fully support you wanting to go into medicine. Nice. Just a last question from Pam. She wants to know, do you have any plans now for reforming the medical and surgery profession for women? So I know that at the end of the book, you were talking about how you were working with RACs and also with the AMA. Mm. Um, Yeah, tell us about that. (laughs) Yeah, no, I am still doing advocacy work behind the scenes. I'm working with local governments as well. So I am still doing a lot of that behind the scenes, um, meeting up with stakeholders to try and improve things even if it's you know small talks here and there to small groups I think that really it starts with connecting with people and having these conversations making it normal to have this dialogue and not be afraid of you know as we were talking about before not be afraid of calling these things out and I I, I'm in a position now where I can I had nothing to lose because I've already left for people who are still in the system it's incredibly hard especially for junior doctors are a very vulnerable group because they still have their whole careers ahead and there are a lot of repercussions to speaking up so I can appreciate why it's difficult for for people who are still in the system to do it but having left now I'm happy that I'm able to still be a voice and advocate for the people who are still in there because I still have friends working in surgery in public hospitals and We still have a lot of work to do, so I'm going to continue advocating in this space. That's fantastic. And for our last question, appropriate because it's from my sister, Juliana. Oh, hello. (laughs) Hello, (laughs) Melissa. Just got that question from Chris. Do you have any regrets? No, definitely not. Yeah. You know, a lot of people say, oh, but, you know, should you have left earlier and all that? I I did suffer a lot, and if I could take away the suffering I wish I could but you know what when I think about what I'm doing now with the surgeons I'm working with the eight years of experience I had even though some of it was very tough it gave me the skills to be able to do what I do now so I I don't regret what I've gone through and yeah and for that reason I still encourage young women to go forward and and to pursue surgery if that's what they want to do. Thank you so much, Yumiko. I cannot thank you enough. This has been great. I was looking forward to this and I was very nervous, but I'm glad it went well. No, you did well. Thank you, Marissa. (laughs) And thanks for wearing the the pin. Oh, Uh, yeah, I love it. When I saw it, I was like, excuse me, I have to have that. (laughs) I love a pin. (laughs) We do. Melissa, on behalf of Readings, thank you so much. And to you, Yumiko, thank you on behalf of Readings, again, on behalf of all of us here, uh, on behalf of feminism, and on behalf of our daughters and our mothers, thank you. Thank it's you. been a pleasure to have you here. Of course, this night has been possible because of the lovely people at Penguin and because you, my friend, had the guts to write what it's like. <laughs> Melissa, what a treat. You make it, what a treat. And to all of you out there, do keep reading, do keep listening, do keep asking questions. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.
Good night. Thank you. You can stream previous episodes of the Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. You can also sign up to e-news or to receive our free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production for this podcast was by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty was never ceded.